Good evening and welcome. It's good to have you all here. Thanks for coming out on a March night to uh, be with us as the 10th series or 10th anniversary of the Faith and Life Lecture Series continues. Did I say that right? Not really. The 10th season, thank you, of the Faith and Life Lecture Series continues. If you've been with us for those 10 years, you know we try to cast a broad net uh, with the kinds of speakers and topics uh, that we have, and we are continuing that tonight. Certainly, but just before I introduce our speaker, a word about the flow for the evening. Uh, we'll hear from him for about 45 or 50 minutes, uh, and then you will have a chance to ask him some questions in an open mic Q&A. So I encourage you to be thinking about what you'd like to ask him. You can find those microphones at either side. Uh, I often get the question, how do you find the speakers? In the case of tonight's speaker, it actually started uh, working backwards from the fact that we had an election this year. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Which is always a dangerous thing to think about, to talk about in churches. But I started casting about for people from the East Coast who might be able to speak about the election. Tonight's speaker was one of the folks who came up, but it turned out that we uh, because of his book, which is Bad Religion, and which, by the way, you can purchase uh, following the talk in the narthex, and he will be happy to inscribe it, uh, came out about a year ago. Because of that book, we wanted to go in a different direction. We also decided to push him back in the year because he is the new father of a four-week-old little girl. So you can offer your congratulations to him. Don't applaud me. So if he falls asleep at the podium, you will understand why, those of you who are parents. Uh, you can read about all of the kinds of writing he has done in his biography. He's currently, of course, the youngest ever uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times, uh, something he said he'd like to grow out of before too long. Um, I always like to include one interesting bit of information beyond the usual biography, and he mentioned to me that uh, most of his cousins are lobster fishermen. So you know that about him now as well. Would you please help me welcome Mr. Ross Douthat. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you all so much for coming. I hope everyone can hear me all right. Yes? Excellent. All right. Um, and you'll hear the thunk when my sleep-deprived head um, hits the lectern midway through just as well, I hope. Um, so, I thought that I would um, begin tonight actually by um, telling you a bit more about my personal background beyond the fascinating fact that uh, my mother's family is composed of many, many Maine lobster fishermen. Um, because I think the ideas and themes and arguments in um, my book grow in part out of my own religious background and experience, which I rather deliberately avoided writing about in the book itself, um, so as to save that material for interesting, semi-intimate introductions at events like this. Uh, so I was born, um, actually I was born in San Francisco, oddly, in the late 1970s. I'm the only uh, conservative columnist for a major American newspaper <laughs> who was b born in San Francisco in 1979. Um, <laughs> But I grew up in southern Connecticut, um, and my parents were, uh, when, I was, when I was four and five and six years old, Episcopalians, uh, which is pretty much the most southern Connecticut style of American Christian that you can be. Uh, but 
at a certain point, uh, mostly because of my mother's influence, um, she had a variety of allergies and sort of chemical sensitivities and sort of mysterious ailments that um, now have inspired the rows and rows of allergen-free de detergents that you see lining the aisles of your supermarkets, but back in the 1980s um, inspired um, very little of that. Uh, so we spent a lot of time as during my childhood sort of migrating through different forms of alternative medicine, unusual diets. We ate uh, the macrobiotic diet, which some of you may be familiar with for a very brutal, grim, um, millet and brown rice strewn year of my childhood. Um, but in addition to sort of seeking out unorthodox cures and medicines and so on, um, my parents were drawn into a faith healing ministry um, that was run by a woman in southern Connecticut that basically hosted um, weekly prayer and healing services, uh, mostly in high school auditoriums around the state. Uh, they didn't have a church or a sanctuary. They sort of migrated from high school to high school, usually on Friday nights, and there was guitar playing, and there was a sermon, and then the woman who ran the ministry um, prayed for people and walked about walked about the auditorium with a microphone and picked out people in different aisles who had different ailments and so on. Um, and they would be slain in the spirit in the language of charismatic Christianity. She would point to people, she would lay hands on people, and people would fall down and have ecstatic religious experiences. And my parents were among the people who had these ecstatic religious experiences. Um, so um, I, for a period in my childhood, had sort of an unusual an, a sort of unusual bifurcation in my life where um, my parents were both Ivy League graduates, we were professionals, I went to uh, sort of liberal-minded private schools around New Haven and that was sort of the normal week and everybody was sort of a good Southern Connecticut semi-secular liberal Democrat and so on and then on the weekends I went and watched my parents speak in tongues. Um, <laughs> and this sort of charismatic experience led us sort of in, in a sense, out of that original Episcopalian background and into a kind of migration through American Christianity. We spent a lot of time um, when I was a child and then as a teenager in sort of charismatic, Pentecostalist and evangelical circles moving, as many Americans do now, from church to church and community to community and so on. And then eventually, when I was about 16 years old, um, we converted, again, led by my mother, to Roman Catholicism, um, which meant that we had essentially, I think, covered the range of at least semi-mainstream Christian faiths. And it, it's, it's interesting, um, I, I cover politics, of course, in part for a living, and um, during the last year or so, as Marco Rubio, the Republican senator from Florida, has risen to a certain kind of prominent, prominence, um, there's been at least some attention paid to his, uh, to his unusual religious background. So if you know a little bit about Marco Rubio, you probably know that um, he's a Hispanic, Cuban-American, raised Roman Catholic, and so on. If you know a little bit more about Marco Rubio, you know that in addition, he often attends and has attended an evangelical megachurch in Florida, and if you know even more about Marco Rubio, you know that for a period of time during his childhood, his parents were Mormon converts, and they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and there are many journalists, people in my profession, who look at that biography and say, you know, well, isn't that sort of a strange, a strange path to take, and I look at it and I say, Marco, my brother. <laughs> um, so, 
anyway, so that, that gives you at least, I think, some of the flavor of um, my own religious background. And it's unusual in certain ways, but as the case of Senator Marco Rubio suggests, it's actually not that unusual in American society as a whole. We are, I think, more than ever a nation of sort of religious seekers, church switchers, denomination switchers, and so forth. Um, but I think it's, it, I, I carried that background with me into an Ivy League education, I'm sorry to say, and then a career in journalism, I'm perhaps even more sorry to say. And, but I think it's been a certain kind of asset for me in two ways. First, just the baseline of having a serious, interesting, diverse religious religious upbringing um, is somewhat distinctive in my profession. I don't think it will come as a surprise uh, to anyone here to know that the American newsroom is not the most devout place in, in American life today. Um, but then also I think that sort of experience of switching churches, sort of moving from community to community and so on, gave me a sense of the interesting diversity of American religious experience that often isn't captured even by the most well-intentioned attempts to analyze American Christianity by people who write about American politics and culture um, for a living. And that was sort of, that sort of disjunction between the way American religion gets written about and the way I had experienced it growing up was sort of the seed of the idea for this book. And it began to flower a little bit, I don't really like that metaphor, but I've run with it, so. Um, in, in the mid-2000s, um, shortly after George W. Bush was re-elected president, and many of you may remember that just after Bush was, was re-elected in 2004, when liberals and Democrats were casting about for an explanation for how this man who they so despised could possibly have won 51% of the vote, um, there was a poll that came out showing that some large percentage of Americans, and particularly Americans, obviously, who had voted for Bush, had cited moral values as the most important factor in, in their decision. And this led to a sort of wave of anguished coverage in the media, anguished writing by liberals and so on, bemoaning fearfully the you know, captivity of the Republican Party to evangelical voters in particular, religious conservatives in general. You had a wave of books that came out with titles like American Theocracy, warning about how the sort of evangelical influence in the Republican Party was well on its way to turning the United States into a sort of you know, Jerry Falwell-esque version of revolutionary Iran or something. Um, and that opened and sort of led fairly naturally, I think, to a period in our public life when debates about religion were dominated by some of religion's most strident critics, the sort of so-called new atheists, figures like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens, and so on. And there was a, a period of time in the mid to late 2000s when I felt like I couldn't turn on my television, or at least the unusual television channels that I watch, without seeing Dawkins or Hitchens having their way with some well-meaning but hapless bishop on a debating stage or something. Um, and those debates were very interesting, and I participated in them, wrote about them, and so on. But what drove them all, I think, was a sort of binary vision of um, the state of American religion, right? That pitted, in the case of the New Atheists, atheists against believers, you know, the case for God against the case against God, and so on. And then, more broadly, 
this sense of sort of religious conservatism on the one hand and secular liberalism on the other hand. And this wasn't just a phenomenon driven by liberal anxieties about the religious right, obviously. It dates back to the 1970s and to the anxieties that inspired the religious right in the first place, right? This sense that sort of secular elites on the Supreme Court and in my hometown of Washington were sort of hijacking America and that, you know, religious Americans were under siege and so on. And so you had on both sides, I think, this, this sense of sort of you know, an America that was either a basically Christian nation that had been led astray by a nefarious secular elite, or an America that was a basically secular nation that, you know, was being sort of corrupted by the, you know, ruthless American Taliban of the religious right or something. And I think the problem with that binary, that sort of, you know, Sarah Palin versus Richard Dawkins binary, if you will, is that uh, the story of religion in America is a lot bigger and a lot more complicated and often a lot more interesting than that. Um, and so what I set out to do in Bad Religion is tell a different story about the state of American Christianity, American religion, but particularly focused on American Christianity, and one that overlaps in certain ways with you know, stories about the religious right and the secular left and so on, but that I think illuminates a different part of what's been happening in our culture over the last few generations. Because I think what's, what's really distinctive about our current moment and what um, I think is in certain ways the most important thing to understand about religious trends in American life of late is that America has spent the last few generations becoming less traditionally Christian, less institutionally Christian, that the institutional churches in American life have weakened dramatically compared to their position in, at mid-century, middle of the last century, that is, in the 1940s and 50s. But th this has happened without the country as a whole necessarily becoming really less religious. So it's not the story, it's a story of sort of institutional Christian decline but not a story of straightforward secularization, certainly not a story of a country you know, where many, many millions of people are becoming strident atheists um, or even sort of semi-strident agnostics. Um, and that in, in fact, to understand our current moment, it's, it's best to look at a different category entirely, and it's the category that um, I use in the subtitle of my book, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, and I understand that for a Catholic speaking in a Lutheran church and using the word heresy, there are some historical sensitivities, you know, some bad memories on both sides, you know, mistakes were made, um, fires were lit, and so on. Um, but. But I, I think that, you know, for all of the historical baggage that the word heresy carries, it's actually a very useful category to, for understanding American religious life over the last couple generations. Um, because what is, you know, what is heresy? Well, one way of looking at it is to say that a heresy of Christianity is you know, a theological interpretation, a revision, you know, what, whatever term you use, of the traditional Christian synth synthesis that still identifies in major ways with historic Christian views, ideas, and so on, um, but departs from them in significant ways as well, but doesn't do so sufficiently to constitute a genuinely new religious tradition in its own right. And I think that that 
that idea of sort of a culture that has one foot in traditional Christian views and one foot somewhere else that's sort of still fascinated by the figure of Jesus of Nazareth and doesn't want to let him go but also wants to reinterpret him in all kinds of, you know, sometimes interesting, sometimes less so ways for the current moment. That, that frame, that lens and so on gives you a better handle on what's happening in the American religious landscape and really in American culture as a whole than do, you know, than the sort of narrative of religious conservatives on the one hand and religious or secular liberals on the other hand. And that in fact what we see in American life today more than that kind of binary is a series of overlapping heresies that have always been part of our national story. And this is something I want to emphasize throughout these remarks that America has always been sort of by definition a nation of heretics, but that have become much more powerful as the traditional sort of more historically rooted Christian churches, both Catholic and Protestant, have lost influence, lost cohesion, lost confidence, and so forth over the last 40 or, 40 or 50 years. Um, and so the book itself is sort of divided into two parts. The first half is a kind of how we got here historical narrative uh, that starts at, in mid-century America in an era when institutional Christianity was at a sort of fairly unique peak in terms of membership, growth, intellectual seriousness, and so on, um, and then traces how that moment sort of came apart, um, the forces that, you know, came on the American scene in the 1960s and 70s that undercut um, both sort of Catholic and Protestant membership, cohesion, and belief, um, and from that story then opens out into sort of a depiction of our present moment and a look at what I think are sort of some of the bigger heretical, if you will, um, forces, worldviews, and so on in, in American life. Um, and so I'll talk first about sort of the historical story. Uh, and I think if you go back to post-war America, if you go back to the 1940s and 1950s, um, you see several things, right? You see a sort of a religious revival in sort of the strictest sense of the term. You see religious, you know, membership in religious congregations going up. The you know number of people professing um, adherence to particular religious traditions going up. You see, you know, um, seminaries and divinity schools with rising enrollment. You see massive church-building campaigns taking place as people, particularly as people, leave urban cores and move out to suburbs and so on and build new churches and congregations grow and split and grow again. Um, but alongside that sort of popular post-war revival, you also had a really serious intellectual and artistic revival of Christian ideas um, in American life. And I think what's, what's particularly interesting about the post-war period is that it was a, it was a moment when the world and the West had sort of spent several decades experimenting with secular or semi-secular alternatives to Christianity, with Marxism and communism on the one hand and with fascism on the other, with these sort of alternative world pictures that seemed to offer some of what religion and Christianity had traditionally offered, sort of, a, you know, narratives, meaning, sort of often eschatological views of sort of history marching in a particular direction towards a particular endpoint and so on. And those experiments, which, you know, from the vantage point of the 1920s and 1930s seemed like to many people like the natural next steps 
in modernity had ended not just in disaster, not just in war and conflict and so on, but in actual you know, horror and evil in the gulag and the concentration camp and so on. And so there was a kind of moment of reassessment in Western life where you had people looking again to the older traditions of the West, to religious traditions in particular, um, for sort of accounts of what had gone wrong, for ideas about human fallenness and sinfulness and so on that had been sort of put aside during the more utopian moment that had preceded that era, but that seemed much more relevant in the wake of the Depression, World War II, the Holocaust, and so forth. Um, and so that, that, that spirit of reassessment produced figures like Reinhold Niebuhr, the great Protestant theologian who became sort of a kind of public the, the public theologian of post-war American life. Um, it produced figures like Fulton Sheen, the Catholic apologist who, uh, who basically did a kind of fusion of theology and self-help in prime time that drew massive ratings um, in, the 19, in the 1950s at the dawn, of the, the dawn of the television era. And Sheen, of course, would you know, do this show in the full pre-Vatican II bishop's regalia um, you know, with the pectoral cross here and the chalkboard behind him and so on. And people, Protestant, Catholic, everywhere in between, would tune in uh, night after night to watch him deliver these kind of mini homilies, these sort of theological and philosophical meditations and so on. Um, so it produced figures like that. It produced other major theologians, Jacques Maritain, Paul Tillich, and so on. It also produced a kind of artistic and particularly literary flowering. It was the era that, you know, had where there was a brief moment when um, you could argue that the, th the three leading poets in the English-speaking world, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, and for a brief time, Robert Lowell, he later drifted away from Catholicism, but they were all Christian converts. Um, you know, it was the era that produced in, in England C.S. Lewis, in the United States Flannery O'Connor, and so on. And to, to a large extent, much of today's Christian culture, I think the authors that today's Christians read and sort of look back on fondly and so on, came out, emerged from that period of reassessment, that era when sort of the Christian message seemed to be capable of being heard again in a modern, um, what had seemed briefly like a post-Christian context and so on. And it was also, I think, an era in American politics when the influence of religion on politics was particularly healthy in the sense, you know, and, and sort of brought to a particular kind of fruition in the civil rights movement, um, which was a moment that is now sort of invoked by both religious liberals and religious conservatives as sort of the you know, exemplary example, if you will, of how to bring Christian faith to bear on a pressing moral issue and how to do so in a way that is, on the one hand, ecumenical. The success of the civil rights movement was, you know, obviously started in the black church, but also involved everyone from northern liberal Protestants to, to Catholic bishops in the south to even many southern Christians who, you know, who, who resisted the civil rights movement in certain ways, but were also, in a sense, shamed by it, by its appeal to their shared Christian convictions, and shamed in a way that made resistance to the civil rights movement much weaker uh, than, it, than it otherwise would have been. So it was this ecumenical movement, but it managed to be ecumenical while also being intensely serious and rigorous. And, you know, if you go back and read Martin Luther King's famous letter from Birmingham jail, if you read it in sort of the context of that moment in American Christian history, what's striking is how much of the Christian past 
king is bringing to bear. He's pulling from, you know, Thomas Aquinas on the one hand and Martin Luther on the other hand, and he's, you know, he's a, he's a Christian minister writing to other Christian ministers and drawing on this kind of ecumenical tradition to make a moral and political appeal, and one, I think, most crucially, that transcended partisan lines, right? I mean, obviously, partisanship then as now was a hugely important force in American life, but the success of the civil rights movement was a success that was ultimately made possible by the fact that the movement itself, particularly in the late 50s and early 60s, this would change later on, but at, at that point, it was not just a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. And, in, you know, it was, it was an issue that united liberal Democrats in the North with moderate Republicans and so on. In the end, you had actually more Republicans than Democrats voting for um, the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And it did, it isolated a faction, what was then a faction within the Democratic Party, though it was also became a faction within the Republican Party as well. But it achieved a kind of, the Civil Rights Movement wouldn't have succeeded if it hadn't achieved a certain level of national consensus that transcended the partisan divisions of the time. So that's sort of the case for why the post-war era was unique and distinctive in a moment when Christianity played, it, it wasn't just that the Christian churches themselves were stronger, it was that Christianity as a force in our culture played a more constructive and healthier role than it, did, than it does, I think, in many ways today. And so what, what happened to that moment? Well, obviously, a lot of things happened to it, but you know, for the, for the sake of sort of condensation, um, my book tries to cite four big forces um, that undercut institutional Christianity basically from the 1960s to the present day. And one of them is sug suggested by um, the, the riff I just had on the civil rights movement, and that's the force of partisan polarization. Um, and this is something, obviously, everyone who follows today's politics is, you know, very well aware of, and people are always bemoaning it, but nobody can seem to do anything about it. But really, the story of American politics over the last couple of generations is that the two political parties have sorted themselves ideologically um, to a much greater extent than was true 50 or 60 years ago. So you ha if you are conservative now, you are Republican. If you are a liberal, you are a Democrat. Um, the old sort of quirks of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans and so on have pretty much been erased um, from, from our politics. And this is not an entirely bad thing. I mean, there's something to be said, particularly if you're a voter trying to make a choice um, about the advantages of having the two parties neatly sorted by ideology, but from the perspective of religion, of Christianity, of the Christian churches, of their attempt to sort of witness on issues in the public square, that sorting makes that witnessing much more difficult, because if Christianity is to be taken seriously um, as, a, you know, as a force for good in the world, as the true story of the world uh, to some extent, then it has to be perceived as transcending particular partisan loyalties to some extent. As I, it, it is extremely difficult to imagine that one political party in one, one particular time and place has somehow stumbled on the fullness of God's truth. And therefore, if Christianity, you know, if Christianity takes itself seriously, it should, to the extent that it engages with politics, find a way to criticize both sides, to appeal to both sides, and so on. And I think that's just much, much, much harder in today's politics um, than it was the, in the politics of 50 years ago. Uh, I think it's, it's very hard to find a place to stand where you are a Christian first and a Republican or a Democrat 
Second, and this is particularly true for politicians, but it's true for people in my profession as well, and it's true for Christian ministers, for pastors and bishops and so on, that any, any intervention that a religious believer makes in the public square today is quickly sort of examined and sorted and sort of defined as, oh, that's a conservative Christian intervention. That's a liberal Christian intervention. And liberal and conservative do most of the talking and sort of the category of Christian does less. And this also has implications for sort of how public figures are perceived. I think the, the example that I like to use is imagine, go, go back to America in the 1950s and imagine how different the politics and culture of that era would have been if Billy Graham had decided that the natural way for him to influence America for the good, to convert Americans to Christ... Um, would have been to run for office as a Republican, which, in fact, there were people who urged Billy Graham at various times uh, to do. And then, by the same token, imagine if Martin Luther King had decided that the natural way to further the goals of the civil rights movement had been to run for office for president, even, as, as a Democrat. I don't think that the political and cultural history of that era would have been healthier had those figures, figures who are now, I think, sort of bipartisan icons in many ways, and justly so, if those figures had identified themselves specifically with a partisan cause. But flash forward a generation, and that's exactly what some of their would-be heirs have often felt the need to do. So a figure like Jesse Jackson in the 1980s, it seems completely natural for Jackson, a would-be heir of King, to run for president twice as a Democrat. And by the same token, it feels entirely natural for Pat Robertson, in certain ways a would-be heir of Billy Graham, to run for president as a Republican. And I think that in that shift, you can see part of the explanation for why America's churches, America's religious leaders, and so on, enjoy a more clouded reputation in many ways um, than they did a few generations ago because ultimately people are reading them and they are reading themselves through partisan categories rather than through religious categories. So you have partisan polarization. Um, then you have obviously the, the force that everyone talks about when the subject of the state of religion in the West comes up, and for good reason, which is the sexual revolution, right? And the extent to which the shift in sexual mores from the 60s to the present um, sort of created a, a gap between traditional Christian sexual ethics and sort of cultural common sense that had not existed in previous generations. So th th there was, you know, obviously the Christian ideal of chastity was always honored more in the breach than the observance. But there was a sense prior to the sexual revolution that sort of the basic contours of that ethic, the idea that sex was for marriage and there was a strong link between sex and marriage and procreation and so on, um, that idea seemed sort of practical as well as idealistic in a way that since the 1960s hasn't been the case. In fact, since the 1960s, it's been quite the reverse. This traditional Christian sexual idea has seemed wildly impractical, completely out of step with sort of the way people live today after the divorce revolution, you know, with the people delaying marriage, the rise in the number of sexual partners people have before marriage, and then coming on the heels of those trends, um, the gay rights revolution, the rise of the arguments for same-sex marriage, and so on. And that is a set of issues I think that no Christian church has figured out a way to handle and, you know, obviously continues to divide and probably will continue to divide 
most Christian churches for the next couple generations and, and, and beyond. This sort of wrestling with to what extent can the traditional Christian ethic be adapted? To what extent does that adaptation just end up meaning a sort of abandonment and surrender to the culture and so on? And, um, you know, and obviously in elite culture in particular, I think that's in, um, you know, in New York and to some extent Washington, but really New York and Los Angeles and the places where sort of the culture industries of America are located. It isn't just that the traditional sexual ideal is regarded as impractical, it's regarded as actively cruel, vicious, homophobic, perverse, and so on. Um, and that, again, is a burden that the Christian churches carry into every conversation, every argument, um, every sermon, and so on, no matter what precise position they've staked out on those issues. So you have sex. And then you have money, which I think to some extent is an underappreciated force undercutting Christian practice and belief over the last few generations. The, the extent to which the explosive growth in the American economy in the 50s and 60s and then sort of the waves of less explosive but still striking growth that have continued um, or at least continued up until the financial crash have created just a sort of American sexual culture drifted away from um, the sexual ethic that you see um, in, well, in almost everything Jesus says about sex in the New Testament. So, uh, by the same token, has a, a, a culture that is as wealthy and as wealth-obsessed as our own come unmoored more than the generation that had experienced the Great Depression, say, from those, you know, the New Testament suspicion of wealth, right? And this is, you know, one of the, if one of the central emphases of New Testament Christianity is a suspicion of acquisitiveness and a sense that sort of materialism is one of the surest routes to perdition, if you will. Um, and that, that's just a message that's obviously always been an uncomfortable message for people to hear, people being who they are, but I think it's a message that's been more uncomfortable for people as American society has grown richer, but also as sort of the, um, the sort of competitive spirit of um, sort of late modern capitalism has, uh, has sort of, you know, affected almost every walk of life and sort of become one of the defining spirits of, of, um, of the late 20th century and early 21st century. And this has sort of theological implications. It explains a lot of the appeal of sort of prosperity theology of preachers and ministers who sort of say, well, there's actually no tension between Christianity and getting rich, right? Because God wants you to get rich. Um, and that message has resonated throughout American history. We've always been a capitalist society filled with people who've been eager to get rich. But I think it's become more resonant uh, as America has become richer over the last 50 years. And I also think, just sort of in institutional terms, one of the problems the American churches, Protestant and Catholic, have had over the last couple of generations is a problem of talent, a problem of attracting the level of talent to the priesthood, in the Catholic case, to the ministry, in the Protestant case, that earlier generations took for granted, and part of that problem has been driven by the steadily increasing award, rewards available in other professions. So it was always the case that going into the ministry involved a certain level of material sacrifice, but the difference between what a well-educated lawyer and a well-educated pastor could expect to take home 
um, in annual income in, say, 1947, that difference was much smaller than the difference is today. And that's true, you know, whether you're comparing pastors to lawyers, pastors to doctors, pastors to bankers, at the elite level of American life, the level of, you know, um, the, the level of people who are sort of choosing between different professional careers, becoming a pastor, and certainly, obviously, in the Catholic case, celibacy adds an extra layer of sacrifice, but the sacrifices that are demanded of pastors have grown larger, and not surprisingly, the talent that has gone into divinity schools and so forth, you can see a real drop-off from the 60s and 70s onward. You can see a drop-off in the number of, say, Phi Beta Kappa college students who end up going into seminary and so on. There are various ways to chart these kind of things. But I think that that's a very specific and practical and underappreciated way in which a richer America has been a place where Christian churches have sort of struggled to make their way and struggled to sort of, you know, have credible leaders and messengers and so on. So you have polarization, you have sex, you have money. And finally, I think you have a sort of more general trend that I, in the book, I sort of talk about it in terms of globalization. Right, um, and the extent to which the the combination of sort of mass communications, television, then eventually the internet, and so on, joined to the experience of decolonization in the 60s and 70s of sort of watching these older European empires that were specifically identified with Christianity in many cases sort of pull back um, and be discredited in many ways. That whole combination has contributed, I think, to a feeling, a mixture of sort of guilt over the crimes of the Western Christian past, and then just more generally a, a feeling of sort of understandable relativism, right? A sense that, you know, you can turn on your TV, um, you can, you know, go online and see the world in all its dizzying diversity in a way previous generations couldn't. And that, that experience makes it just a little harder to believe that your one particular church could possibly be the one particular church. And again, this isn't a trend, none of these trends, but this one in particular, it's not a trend that pushes people away from sort of spirituality, away from some kind of religious belief, but it is a trend that pushes them away from a kind of institutional loyalty, a sense of sort of belief that, you know, as a Lutheran, as a Methodist, as a Catholic, you are sort of living out the fullest expression of whatever the truth about the universe is, because look how, look how wide and wild and complicated the world is. What are the odds, you know, that, you know, one particular denomination, one particular church in one particular time and place could possibly have a monopoly on the truth. I think that's a very natural and understandable reaction, but I think it all, and I think it explains, again, a lot about sort of the troubles that institutional churches have had maintaining cohesion, loyalty, and so forth. Um, so those are sort of my four big picture trends that explain how we got to where we are today. And so where, where are we today? Well, I think you, we're, we're in a place that, where it's, in certain ways, the best way to understand the state of American religion is to walk into your local Barnes & Noble. And unfortunately, thanks to Amazon, you have many fewer local Barnes & Nobles to walk into, and so it's much, it may be harder to sort of get that, get that kind of, put that, you know, put your finger on the pulse of, um, of religion in America today. But the, if you look at, you know, where, where are people where are people actually getting 
their theology, right? Where are people actually getting their religious ideas? Well, is it that people have just sort of abandoned religion entirely? And this is something you hear, I think, more of in the press today than you did, say, five years ago when I was starting to um, think about some of the ideas in the book. Because you do see, particularly among my generation, a stark decline in the number of people who identify with a particular church. You have the rise of the so-called nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, not <laughs> N-U-N-S, um, people who have no religious affiliation, and this number has shot up for the population as a whole, but it shot way up for the millennial generation, for people in their 20s and early 30s. It's, I think, in the, in the th- something like 30 to 35%, uh, or maybe even more, where it would, would have been, say, 10% uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And so uh, in certain ways, that looks like just secularization, right? It looks like sort of the end of American exceptionalism. It looks like, okay, well, we're just going down the same path as Western Europe. We're just doing it a couple generations later. And so fewer and fewer, fewer people are going to be religious and fewer people will be in church and so on. And that's a semi-plausible interpretation of that data. But if you actually then drill down into polling data and say, okay, well, these people who don't identify as Lutherans or Methodists or Catholics or Presbyterians or what have you anymore, are they actually becoming genuinely secular? Do they not believe in God? Do they, you know, do they no longer practice religion in any form? And in some cases, the answer is yes. But in many cases, you can find actual, you know, strong currents of religious belief and spiritual interest even among people who don't identify with any particular religious tradition. Many of them will say, well, yes, I, you know, I don't consider myself of any tradition, but I pray every day, or I believe in an afterlife, and so on. And in fact, there are certain me- by certain measurements, America has become more, more interested, let's say, in the supernatural and the numinous uh, than we were 50 years ago when the institutional churches were stronger. So the percentage of Americans, for instance, who say they've had a direct personal experience of God has, some, has doubled, I think, since the mid-1950s. The percentage of Americans who believe in an afterlife actually went up slightly from the late 40s to the present. Uh, and so I think it's, it, it's, it's what's, what's happened with institutional Christianity's decline is much more complicated than straightforward secularization. What's happened instead is that there's, a, there's been a rise of do-it-yourself spirituality. There's been a rise in sort of, you know, again, to go back to where I began, in sort of church shopping and church hopping and so on. And a lot of people's spiritual needs are being met in different ways by, you know, not by... Pope Benedict XVI, or Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, I should say, and, um, but neither are they being met by Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. Instead, they're being met by, let's say, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, a book that maybe some of you have read, maybe some of you have seen the movie with Julia Roberts. Um, if you want to understand the state of religion in America, pick up Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, it is a book in many ways that fits into the sort of classic religious conversion narrative, going back to, you know, St. Augustine, basically. You have a sort of, it begins with a literal dark night of the soul, with Elizabeth Gilbert on her knees in her bathroom, praying to God for deliverance from a life she thought she wanted but turned out not to want. And it sends her on a religious pilgrimage, um, which she ends up in an ashram in India, having ecstatic experiences of the divine. And a big part of the appeal of the book is that there's nothing secular 
about it. There's nothing sort of, it, it is in fact intensely sincere about its, you know, sort of, it's, it's an, an intensely sincere account of religious experience. And I think intensely authentic. Um, you know, it, it, I think it, I, I read it and I see sort of, you know, some of the same things that I saw in my parents in my own childhood, in their kind of religious quests and experiences and so on. But it's a quest that doesn't end the way, let's say, Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain ended, to pick a religious memoir from the 1940s and 50s, right? Which, ha you know, which ends with Merton becoming a monk, right? Becoming sort of, you know, converting to a particular faith, to a particular tradition, joining a particular religious order, and sort of submitting himself to the discipline of a, of a particular community and tradition. Instead, there's no sense that that's even something that Gilbert considers as an option, right? There's no, she goes, she leaves America behind, she goes and finds God in India, but there's no sense that she's thinking of actually becoming a Hindu, right? Of sort of converting to this alternative tradition besides the sort of lukewarm liberal Protestantism of her background. Instead, it's just sort of taken for granted that this, that sort of the point of a spiritual quest is to sort of pick and choose elements from different religious traditions and make them work for you. And sort of running in parallel with that, there's also a sense in the book that sort of the moral component of religion is, again, much more of a sort of, you know, personal do-it-yourself kind of thing that isn't, that doesn't sort of demand that you submit in any real way to sort of traditions older and bigger than, than yourself. I mean, it's, it's a religious conversion story that's basically about how, um, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert left her husband, found God, and then found happiness in the arms of a handsome Brazilian divorcee, which is somewhat different from the arc that St. Augustine follows in, in the Confessions. Um, but I think it's, it's that, that combination, the sort of, you know, the sense of sort of, you know, religion as something to sort of be, you know, you're plucking from a tradition here, you're plucking from a tradition there, and you're sort of pursuing God, but there isn't a sort of sense that God is necessarily demanding that you actually, you know, change your life in sort of a radical way to suit his precepts and demands. That is, I think, sort of one of the defining ways that religion is lived out in America today. And I think you, could, you can see the same thing at work in a figure like Joel Osteen, right, um, who who's sort of over, fits in with some of the prosperity preaching um, that I that I was mentioning before, Osteen is in many ways our Billy Graham, right? He is our era's most successful evangelist. Um, he you know he has the television shows. He goes and sells out baseball stadiums around the country. He travels the world. His books are bestsellers and so on. And his message is similar in many ways to Graham's, right? You know, a huge part of Graham's appeal was that he didn't feel like a sort of cramped, narrow, judgmental fundamentalist, right, necessarily. He had a much more open-handed, ecumenical vision of Christian faith where God's love was sort of universally available. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like a sectarian message. It didn't feel like the sort of, you know, cliches of fundamentalism and inherit the wind or something. It felt much more modern and open-handed and accessible. And, and that was, you know, that was sort of the secret of Graham's success. But Graham combined that 
message of universal love, that sort of ecumenical spirit and so on, with a parallel message of judgment, of you know, the reality of sin and the need for repentance and so on. And if you compare that sort of synthesis to what Osteen does, you notice very quickly that half of the synthesis is missing, right? That you know, the Osteen message is all about God's universal love, and the word sin doesn't even creep into the text, or if it does creep into the text, the only sin is believing that God doesn't want to bless you a hundredfold with perhaps a big house, a car, and, and everything in between. Um, and again, as with something like Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, the problem is not that, it's, that what Osteen is doing is sort of fraudulent, right? I mean, I think there's sort of a stereotype of the prosperity preacher, you know, the huckster who's fleecing his congregation and so on and, you know, sort of telling people about pie in the sky and, and, and so on while, while he gets rich. And, you know, I mean, obviously Osteen is rich and successful and so on, but the, the message he's offering is a very real and important part of the Christian message. And I've, when I've done book promotion, I would, you know, go on the radio and I would say something critical about Osteen and there would almost always be someone who would call in and say, look, I hear what you're saying about the problem with Osteen's theology, but, you know, I was in a dark place in my life, and I just needed to hear that God loved me. And I turned on the television, and there was Osteen saying it, and it made a huge difference to me to hear that. And I, th I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a good thing, and it's, it's an important thing, and it's a huge part of Osteen's appeal, just as the authenticity, the sort of raw spiritual hunger of an Elizabeth Gilbert is a huge part of her appeal. But the problem with these sort of post-institutional forms of Christianity is that they don't have, there isn't a synthesis, right? There isn't a balance. And that balance is something that, you know, institutional Christianity also fails to strike in many times and places. But I do think that historically, the institutional churches have been better custodians of the balance. They've, they've done more to sort of maintain that on the one hand, God loves you, but on the other hand, he's not going to bless every single thing you do. That kind of, you know, God's love is real, but sin is real as well. They've done more to strike that balance than a lot of contemporary popular spirituality has done. And, and then I think they've also done more, um, they, they've also done more to sort of avoid the temptation of just sort of pouring religious energy into into political causes. And that's, that's where I'll sort of try and wrap this up with, I think, sort of what, what is the, the political manifestation of this decline of, of religious institutions is that you have a lot of religious energy floating around. You have, people have this sort of religious impulse, this desire for sort of being part of a, you know, being part of a larger community that's connected in some way to divine or semi-divine purposes on earth. But as the institutional churches have weakened, people have become more and more likely to pour that energy into political causes and ideological movements, which in turn are more likely to ultimately sort of disappoint um, and lead to sort of alienation, polarization, apocalyptic thinking, and so on. And I think a big part of the sort of wild story of American politics over the last few election cycles is that it's a story of that kind of misplaced or displaced religious energy. So if you look at sort of the wild enthusiasm for Barack Obama in 2007, 2008, the sort of halos behind his head on magazine covers, the celebrities keening for him on YouTube, and so on, I, what, what you can see there, I think, is sort of 
a lot of the what once was sort of the religious energy of liberal Christianity in the United States that now has just become a sort of diffuse religious energy sort of looking for a kind of secular messiah figure to fasten on. And then it, it found Barack Obama. It fastened on him. But then it inevitably led to a certain amount of, um, of disappointment when Obama turned out to be, you know, a very talented um, politician in many ways, but just a politician, just a mortal man. And you see this, I think, often, particularly in my profession, in this kind of perpetual weird frustration in, in, um, from political observers where it's like, well, you know, why, why can't Obama do this? Why can't he do that? Why can't he just bend the Republicans to his will and so on? And, you know, there are very good reasons why he can't bend the Republicans to his will that have to do with sort of the separation of powers and sort of political polarization in the United States and so on. But I think there's sort of an expectation that these leaders we have will sort of have, you know, semi-divine, quasi-messianic powers that no leader can actually exercise. And then by the same token, you get the flip side of that messianism, which is sort of an apocalyptic style, right? So the sort of messianic spirit of adulation around Obama summoned up an apocalyptic response from many conservatives that you, you know, saw manifest in many of, say, Glenn Beck's television broadcasts in 2009 or so, right, where there is, you know, just as you had the sense from liberals that the election of Barack Obama was sort of bringing about the messianic kingdom somehow, you had this sense on the right that the election of Barack Obama was, you know, represented not just a victory for liberalism, but a kind of sort of, you know, God's face being turned away from the United States, and that, you know, Obama was sort of a halfway to being a kind of antichrist figure, and that the United States was, you know, doomed to decline and disarray and collapse um, because we turned power over to this, to this man, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that all of that, you know, those tendencies, again, have, there have always been part of American politics. And, you know, there are many, many moments in the American past as polarized as ours. But I do think that the combination of the decline of sort of alternative outlets for religious energy and the polarization of our two parties has made the temptation to sort of invest political causes with religious, utopian, messianic significance more potent than it should be and more potent than would be healthy um, for America as a whole. So it's five minutes of eight. And so I, th I think, you know, at, at this point, at this point in, in the talk, people generally sort of get restless and think, well, is he going to say anything optimistic about Amer American Christianity? <laughs> um, but I think maybe I can save, save the optimism for the question and answers, if that, if that makes sense. And you can ask questions that will hopefully elicit some optimism from me. So thank you all so very, very much. We'll, uh, we'll let him catch his breath and, and take a drink here. And for the Q&A, yeah, we'll be talking about politics, money, and sex. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> let me say a couple of announcements before we get to the Q&A. The first is uh, just to plug our next event uh, that's in your program tonight. It's uh, Friday, April 26th, so note Friday, not a Thursday. The other four events this year have been Thursday, so Friday, April 26th with Glennon Melton. Uh, Glennon is a blogger of Momastery, 
and her new book, Carry On Warriors, coming out uh, in April, actually, just before she arrives here. Uh, I anticipate that will be a very full house, so if you'd like to hear her, please get here early. If you would like to uh, have us remind you of that event, I'd encourage you to give us your email. You can do that either by this uh, green sheet, which you can leave in the baskets out there, or you can sign up on the website. You can also like us on this new thing called Facebook, if you've heard of that and uh, learn about our events that way. Um, finally, a word to our sponsors. For 10 years now, uh, we have been able to hold these events and you have been able to come and hear outstanding speakers like Ross uh, at no charge, thanks to the wonderful generosity of individuals and organizations. They are listed uh, in your program tonight. Let me just mention some of our corporate sponsors, though. Uh, Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, um, the Crossroads Community Office has been a very faithful sponsor for a number of years. Productivity Inc., which is a Plymouth-based company. Cressa, uh, TCF Bank, Rapid Packaging, Sparky. And we also partner with three uh, academic institutions, Luther Seminary, Augsburg Center for Faith and Learning, and the McLaurin uh, CSF Institute at the University of Minnesota. Uh, and then we have a number of people listed there. We have lots of those individuals with us here tonight. Would you join me in thanking them for their generosity? Okay, now we're going to spend a few minutes doing questions. We'll go till about quarter after eight. And again, if you've got questions, the easiest way to ask is at these mics here. Okay, we have people hopping up already. That's a good sign, I think. <laughs> good sign for you, but... Um, okay. Well, I don't mean to get so particular, but so you mentioned the four causes. Um, being a Catholic, I'm curious to wonder your thoughts about Vatican II, how much of a pull that had on kind of the liberal theology. I remember in the book you talked about how people kind of said, well, Jesus ate with sinners, but then they forgot about his teachings on divorce and other things like that. So did Vatican II kind of give fuel to the fire to push some of the liberal-leading Catholics and other denominations say, okay, now we got something we can really run with? To, to some extent, yes. But I, I think that there's a it's a mistake to look at something like the Second Vatican Council in isolation from the broader trends in, in that era. I mean, I think that the, the experience that the Catholic Church went through after Vatican II was unique in sort of the immediacy with which sort of things seemed to become chaotic and seminaries emptied and sort of, you know, the people, people were having... Um, sort of wild debates about the shape of the liturgy and so on. Um, but, but some of that was a sort of, I mean, it was, it was two things, right? There was sort of a lot of pent-up energy in the church that people hadn't sort of figured out was pent-up energy, but that was sort of released by the experience of having the Second Vatican Council and having those kind of changes take place so suddenly and sweepingly. Um, and then also... You know, what's striking about the 1960s, and um, many of you lived through the 1960s, so you obviously don't need me to tell you this, but things happened very, very fast in a way that I think hasn't really been the case in our politics and culture to the same extent since, even in the age of the Internet and so on. But if you go back and look at sort of what people are saying in 1962 versus what they're saying in 1968, the speed with which sort of the various cultural revolutions work themselves out, and this isn't just true in religion, it's true sort of across the board, is 
pretty, it's pretty staggering. So going into the Second Vatican Council, right, you go back and read liberal Catholic publications, sort of what, you know, what are liberal Catholics hoping for from the Council, you see almost no mention of what have since become these sort of flashpoint issues having to do with, you know, sexuality and, you know, priestly celibacy and, um, and, and all the rest. It's, it's a set of, it's a much, it's a set of concerns from the 1950s, right, about sort of, you know, well, will the church sort of, you know, recognize the importance of religious liberty and so on. I mean, basically all the stuff that actually happened at Vatican II, that was sort of the agenda in the early 60s. And then, you know, and, and occasionally you'd have somebody say, and, you know, maybe we can start, you know, having more of a conversation about contraception, birth control, and so on. But it wasn't like, you know, in 1962 there was sort of this clear sense of where, you know, just of what form the sexual revolution would take, right? I mean, that, those changes just came on very suddenly, and it shouldn't be a surprise that, uh, you know, religious institutions had a hard time sort of I mean, I think two generations later, religious institutions haven't figured out how to, how to handle those shifts. But the fact that they happened in such a compressed period of time, I think, made the aftermath of Vatican II much more chaotic than anyone would have anticipated, and more chaotic than, you know, I don't, I, I don't think it's, I don't think Vatican II, I think Vatican II, what, what happened afterward is more sort of manifestation of broader trends than necessarily a sort of, you know, an immediate consequence of the council itself. I'd also say that if you look, you know, the, the aftermath of Vatican II worked itself out in different ways in different countries, right? And so there were, there were countries that didn't experience the kind of sort of crisis mentality that was experienced in the American church in the 60s and 70s, but they usually ended up experiencing it later. So Catholicism in Ireland, for instance, was sort of frozen in a kind of pre-Vatican II level of cohesion, mass attendance, and so on into the 1990s, but then sort of they experienced the 60s and the 90s as those sort of trends worked themselves out, and now, you know, Catholicism in Ireland is in, in all, all kinds of trouble and disarray and so on. So I don't, I, I think it's a mistake to sort of look at the council in isolation. I don't think there's a world where the church could have sort of maintained itself in splendid isolation and so on. And I think the changes, you know, the shift to the vernacular and the mass and so on, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine, especially as the church became more globalized, for instance, that some version of those trends wouldn't have happened even if John the Twenty-Third hadn't called the council um, when he did, but it's really striking. I mean, the to to watch this is sort of separate from religion, but related to it. If you watch sort of you know if you watch Mad Men, right, the show on AMC about ad execs in the late fifties and early sixties and so on, and you watch the first season set in 1960 or so, and then watch the famous documentary, the three-hour documentary about Woodstock. If you didn't know anything about when those two, when that documentary and that show were set, you would think they were set 50 to 75, maybe 100 years apart. And of course, they're, you know, 10 years apart. And obviously, you know, most Americans weren't Madison Avenue ad execs in 1960, and most Americans weren't at Woodstock, although many, many claim to be <laughs> a ten, ten, 10 years later. But I, I think that there is a sort of, you know, it's, people talk about the 60s all the time, and it's sort of a cliche, but there really is a kind of big rupture there that's more profound than 
you know, the shift from like grunge and nirvana to the Backstreet Boys in the 1990s or something, or you know, any of the cultural changes that my generation has lived through. So, yes, oh, sorry, but yes, sir. Uh, as a Lutheran pastor, I just want to say uh, thanks a lot for your uh, comments about the lack of talent among pastors today. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I give this talk in, at sort of college settings, right. and so, you know, the professors I'm are sure all there I'm sure it goes like, over oh, big yes, at the yes. New York Times. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you talk about these kind of this almost Time Magazine great man theory of history when you talk about Reinhold Niebuhr and Fulton Sheen and Billy Graham and uh, Dr. King. I'm wondering if they were born 50 years later, what would they be like today? Were they just of their times or would they be great today too? I mean, I think that in part I'm sort of resistant to a great man theory of history. I mean, I think they were great men, but I also think that there, there is a sense in which that sort of particular post-war moment, that sort of, you know, after Hitler, before the sexual revolution moment, made it possible to be Reinhold Niebuhr, right, in a way that it, it would be very hard to be Reinhold Niebuhr today. And also, I mean, there's sort of a general fragmentation of American culture. Like, you know, you've mentioned Time Magazine, right? But Time Magazine is a very different institution in 1955 than it is today when, you know, the news this week is that Time Inc. is sort of basically breaking up, right? You had, you know, part of, part of the story in that era is just, you know, you could, Fulton Sheen could be Fulton Sheen because there were only four television networks, right? And, and so to, to that extent, there's, yeah, there, there, even, even Fulton Sheen wouldn't be Fulton Sheen today, right, and so on. So that's, that's obviously, there's obviously an extent to which I, I think these deep structural forces are more important than the individual personalities. And I think that, you know, I'm politically conservative, theologically pretty conservative, and I think my fellow conservatives often have a tendency to sort of have a kind of great man theory in reverse, where it's like everything was fine, and then Hugh Hefner came along, and Betty Friedan, you know, <laughs> and so on. And so I think it's important for conservatives in particular to recognize that, uh, you know, if it hadn't been Hugh Hefner, it would have been somebody else, right? That there is these sort of structural sort of tectonic shifts that drive things. Now, that being said, and this is to sort of get, take things in a slightly more optimistic direction, you do also have to believe that personalities can make a difference, right? Even, you know, even if the cultural matrix, the cultural context is very different, it still has, it's, or at the very least, even if the difference they make, you know, even if they can't be Reinhold Niebuhr as Reinhold Niebuhr was, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at the things that were good about Reinhold Niebuhr and say, well, that's a model, you know, a model for how Christian intellectuals should conduct themselves today, right? I mean, to take the example of King, it's totally the case that no social movement today um, can escape the sort of pull of partisanship, right? The, you know, the, the sense that, like, you know, you're either a Republican or a Democrat, and, you know, you're going to be defined one way or another, and so on. That's, that's absolutely the case. But that reality doesn't change our obligation to try and sort of escape that push and pull, right? I mean, even, even if people are going to label you as right or left, that doesn't mean you have to become the label, right? And like, to take, take, take a sort of more political than religious example, someone like Sarah Palin. In Alaska, as governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin was a actually 
interesting political figure. She was someone who was sort of a, you know, conservative, conservative Republican with roots in the religious right and so on, who became Alaska's governor and, you know, on an anti-corruption campaign and sort of spent a lot of her political capital fighting big oil companies, right? It's sort of a model that doesn't necessarily map onto American politics. So John McCain takes Sarah Palin, he plucks her out, he brings her on the national stage, and immediately everything she says or does is read through the lens of culture war, of polarization, and so on. And liberals are attacking her, and conservatives are defending her, and so on. And in that, that's just sort of inevitable, right? That's the way our politics are. But the choices that Sarah Palin herself then made were basically to sort of identify with that polarization, to say, well, you know, if liberals are going to caricature me, I'm going to be the caricature. And, you know, and that basically led her down the path to the irrelevance that she enjoys in our politics today. Um, but I think that there's, you know, that's, that's a sort of political story, but it applies to sort of religious witness in the public square as well, that you need, you need to be aware of that, you know, sort of right-left polarization, but it doesn't mean you have to sort of, you know, sort of lean into it. Um, you have to find ways to sort of lean against it, whether you're a politician or a pastor or, God help us, a newspaper columnist. So. Hugh Hecklow published a book a few years ago called uh, Thinking Institutionally, which I came across uh, thanks to uh, David Brooks' column. <sighs> Sorry. He follows me everywhere. He's so and reasonable. In that book, Have you he, noticed that? He's really reasonable. Go. In that book, he, he talks about the general decay of institutions, the decay of our respect for institutions, and the decay of institutional life from the inside as well which seems to me to provide some context for some of the things that you're talking about. And so I'm wondering what the solvent has really been to separate us from our institutional life in a broader context. And, I'm, and some of the things that you're talking about relate, seems to me, directly to this overwhelming consumerism that has become a major part of our culture these days, where we shop not just for... Uh, candy and flowers and cars and houses, but churches as well. And as consumers, we're taught we're king, and we make up our own mind, and we have power. And you mentioned the inability these days to submit. So I'm wondering if you can draw some connections between not only the, the institutional context across the board, but also this, this economic um, imperative to take control, quote unquote, of our own consumer lives, and that becomes kind of who we are now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that I'm in 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 this book. I'm sort of doing the religious take on what is clearly a broader story, right? And it, and and I think what I hope that I that I end up illuminating is just the way that sort of religion fits into that story. And it is a story about it's a story about sort of expressive individualism is one of the ways that sociologists have described it, this sort of sense in which everything you do is sort of supposed to be an expression of your individuality, and that extends, and that's sort of, it's both sort of the logic of, it's, there's sort of a theological logic that I, in the book I call it the God within, right, this sort of sense that the truest God you can encounter is the God that you find within yourself, and therefore, if your encounter with the God within yourself conflicts with some external religious teaching, you listen to the God within and you ignore the external teaching and so on. But the, I think the consumerist element that you mentioned is absolutely 
part of it as well. The, and and it's sort of, it sort of, you know, it's working in, it's sort of a, a cycle that feeds on itself, right? So you're sort of, you know, on the one hand, the imperatives of consumerism sort of drive you to sort of think of what you buy and spend and so on as your identity. And then, you know, the more you think of that as your identity, the stronger the imperatives to, you know, buy and spend and so on. Um, and you, you sort of see this, I mean, you can see this playing itself out on, you know, if you turn on HGTV and, you know, watch sort of how people shop for homes. And my wife and I, I have to say, watch a lot of HGTV as, you know, new, as, as new homeowners who are very invested in what our kitchen tiles look like and so on. But and this is something that Brooks actually writes about a lot in his book, Bobo's in Paradise, right? The sort of the spiritualization of consumption, right? The sense in which it's, it's sort of, it's a little bit different from the kind of conspicuous consumption of like the, you know, the 1880s where you're building huge vacation cottages that have 50 rooms and so on. It's, it's in certain ways more, you know, it's more limited than that sort of our, there, there's a certain, there's a certain modesty to the way we consume where we don't want to be perceived as sort of too over the top but instead, that sort of manifests itself in finding that, you know, fine-grained, granite, authentic bathroom tile imported from West Africa where it was, you know, sort of carved by native, you know, what, what I mean, that sort, of, that sort of mentality, which is a different, you know, it, it's ultimately sort of a different kind of indulgence from the huge vacation cottages in Newport or something, but it is an indulgence all the same. Um, and I, I think that these... You know, it's 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 very hard with any sort of broad-based social trend to sort of pick pick out one piece and say this is what's you know this is what's driving it right. And so, I'm talking a lot about the religious trends. There are obviously deep economic trends, and then they sort of converge in the social trends where. You know, it's people, it's the sort of bowling alone phenomenon that people talk about, the sort of decline of people joining, you know, Elks clubs and 4-H lodges and so on. Uh, it's, you know, the weakening of family bonds, the fact that, you know, fewer people are growing up in two-parent families. People are having fewer children, so people have fewer siblings. Sort of extended kin networks are less extensive um, than, than they used to be. And then I think the biggest question, and the one that, you know, will be answered over the next few decades is what effect does the internet have on all of this? Um, and, you know, since I'm sort of have a pessimistic bent, I tend to sort of be sympathetic to the argument that ultimately the internet sort of worsens these trends by providing a kind of ersatz community, right, where you have lots and lots of friends, you know, on Facebook and lots and lots of friends on Twitter and lots and lots of sort of online community that ultimately isn't really a substitute for real community and that also sort of encourages a kind of, a kind of narcissism almost, the sort of perpetual self-cultivation, self-fashioning where you're updating your Facebook profile in just the right way to sort of be perceived in just the right way and so on. Um, that's sort of the, the pessimistic spin. There is a sort of optimistic spin too, though, which is that the Internet, you know, does sort of bring isolated people into contact with you know, other isolated people in communities. Well, but in, you know, in communities, you know, I mean, you know, the sort of, the, the, it's, it's easy to sort of say, well, the message board community isn't a real community. But in fact, many of those communities, you know, provide people with a kind of 
human contact that they might not be getting otherwise, and so on. And the sort of, you know, people of diverse interests, I mean, the sort of, the sort of utopian promise of the internet is people with diverse interests finding each other and forming communities that wouldn't be possible geographically. And so I think that, you know, which, which of those narratives of the internet is right or which is more right and so on is sort of one of the big social questions um, of the next you know, the next few generations, and obviously how it impacts religion, you know, what does it mean, is it possible to have sort of virtual religious communities, I mean, you know, to, to what extent is that possible, um, are big questions that aren't, you know, we can't answer right now because we're only really 12 years into the, you know, the age of the internet, so. Let's do, um Let's just do, I apologize. No, I, some I, of you've been standing. I, I, I tend to um, run on. So let's do one final question. So if it's going to be optimistic, now would be the time. Well, why don't we, why don't we do, why, I'll, I'll try and fold two answers together. So why don't we, oh, okay. can I take, I'll, as long as, it, as long as they're optimistic questions. Let's, let's, let's do both okay. of you gentlemen. I think there's an optimistic question in this. I, another pastor, no offense taken. Um, the, uh, I kind of refuse to believe that we're stuck with polarization. And as I look around for a place where there might be the desire and the leadership out of that, I think of the church because we have founding documents that call us to love one another, right? And so comment, please, on the possibility that Christianity as a set of institutions or congregations could lead the republic back to the ability to talk to one another. I'm moving in a different direction. <laughs> Thanks for a fascinating book and a fascinating lecture. My concern is the presence of uh, non-biblical faith in the United States. And I wonder, uh, from your point of view, what would be their presence and power in the continuing story about heresy and about the future of the you know, tradition? And where is it going to? Those are very different questions. Yes. <laughs> All right, so I'll give two separate, discrete, brief answers. First, <clears throat> I mean, you don't want to make an instrumental case for Christianity, right? Where you say, people should be Christian because America is polarized and Christianity can bring us together. But it is nonetheless the case that if Christianity is true, that models of authentic Christianity should provide a, you know, a, a model for community that, and sort of a model for moving beyond division and polarization that should be attractive. Um, so there's, you know, you, you have to be careful and, you know, the arguments I make in my book probably sometimes shade into the sort of overly pragmatic and instrumental, but the challenge, I think, for Christians is to sort of man, you know, is is to manifest attractive communities, and I think that this is, you know, to the extent that there's sort of a particular answer to that, you know, the sort of broader trends I'm discussing away from institutional faith, institutions in general, and so on. It has to come from the, you know, from a, a local rather than a national level, right? I think the story of both the religious right and the sort of weaker, less influential religious left over the last 30 or 40 years is the failure of sort of national religious movements to rebuild 
the you know the sort of the sort of fragile unity that the country temporarily achieved in the post-war era, and having that that failure ultimately suggests that well you have to start at a lower level. You know you have to start you have to start with parishes and churches. You have to start you know with sort of maybe maybe you know take take cities and communities and states and so on. But you have to start at that level. And I will say that you know I wrote this book. In Washington, D.C., you know, we just had our first child. I'm sitting in coffee shops with stacks of, you know, out-of-print books from intra-Catholic arguments from 1968 or something. Um, and then promoting the book, I've actually gotten out of Washington, D.C., and I've gone, you know, to churches and religious colleges and campuses and so on around the country, and that experience has made me more optimistic. It's easier to be optimistic about the future of Christian faith and sort of the future of Christianity's influence on America in um, Jackson, Tennessee, or Bismarck, North Dakota, to name a couple of the diverse places that I've visited over the last year, than it is in Washington itself. And, you know, that's in certain ways a reason for pessimism, because obviously Bismarck has less influence <laughs> over America than Washington. But I think it provides a sense, you know, a sense of where renewal might come from. And then I have no segue. So the, <laughs> the, the, the question of non-Christian faiths, I think, is it's sort of it, it to me it's still sort of uncertain to what extent there is a sort of post-Christian future for the United States where Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, whatever whatever sort of major world religions you think about come to have real influence on the culture because I don't think that's happened yet. I think that what has happened is we have this sort of this sort of heretical, pseudo-Christian, quasi-Christian culture that, you know, will we'll take things from Buddhism, will take things from Hinduism, will take things from Islam, and sort of try and match them up with bits and pieces of Christianity and so on. But ultimately, I feel like we're still, you know, we're a da Vinci Code culture, right? We're a culture that want, we still want Jesus, we just wanted to turn out that, hey, there was this extra gospel, and you know, it turns out Jesus was, this, was married to Mary Magdalene, and he was this cool guy who lived in the Galilean suburbs, and he'd be totally fine with our modern American way of life. But we still want Jesus. And as long as that's the case, I think that the, you know, the American religious story is still a Christian story first, and these other traditions are still most influential sort of in the way they're combined with pieces of pieces of Christianity. So I'm not yet, I'm not yet sure that it's, you know, this, the story of Islam in America is a big religious story as opposed to, you know, a small and very interesting story. And I'll leave it there. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for coming. Again, you can purchase the book, and he'll be happy to visit and talk to you and inscribe it in the narthex. And before we head out, I have a small gift for you. Uh, it's a granite plaque that says, with thanks to Ross Douthat for bringing faith to life. Thank you very, very much. That, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs>